Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And this is our second part of our episodes about Blockbuster. The first one was the birth of Blockbuster. If you've not heard that, go listen to that episode first, because this is the death of Blockbuster. Spoiler alert. We left off at the tail end of 1993. In the last episode, Blockbuster had grown from a modest video rental operation in the mid-1980s into the dominant company in the home video rental industry a decade later. But a slowing market and some questionable accounting strategies had put the brakes on the meteoric growth the company had been enjoying in the late 1980s. In September 1993, Wayne Huizinga, head of Blockbuster, announced a planned merger agreement between Blockbuster and the media company Viacom. The proposed merger would be a $4.7 billion deal. But there was a problem. Viacom was already engaged in another big acquisition effort at that time. The company was in a little bit of a bidding war with QVC in order to try and purchase Paramount Communications. Viacom's talks with Blockbuster were kind of put on hold while that battle was raging. Ultimately, Viacom won the bidding war, and it bought Paramount, with Blockbuster investing in Viacom to help fund that acquisition. But both Viacom and Blockbuster were suffering in the stock market after this bidding war. The value of both companies took a hit. By the time Viacom was finally ready to move forward with the Blockbuster acquisition in 1994, that $4.7 billion proposed deal had ballooned up to $8.4 billion. Wazinga said, see ya, shortly after the deal was over, and then pursued his hobby of buying Florida professional sports teams. Seriously, he was an owner of the Miami Dolphins, the Florida Panthers, and the Florida Marlins. He actually was the guy who brought the Marlins and the Panthers teams into existence. He would go on to found a little company called Auto Nation that kind of followed the blockbuster model, but, you know, with car sales instead of video rentals. And Huizinga was a billionaire. He passed away earlier this year on March 22nd, 2018. All right, back to Blockbuster, the company that Huizinga left. Viacom's Blockbuster was, well, it was a mess. The company was already starting to teeter after the incredibly aggressive expansion strategy that Huizinga had initiated. And Viacom was having problems finding someone who could take the helm and be an effective leader of the company. Now, this is not necessarily to cast shade on the CEOs who would inhabit the position of head of Blockbuster, from the fall of 1994 into the spring of 1997, but rather put into perspective the kind of trouble the company was in. It was getting really tough out there in the market. Blockbuster had grown super fast through opening lots of stores and tons of acquisitions. The video rental industry just wasn't as lucrative in 1994 as it had been in the mid-80s. Videotape prices had started to come down considerably, which led to a lot of home theater enthusiasts going away from rentals and just buying movies outright for their home libraries. I mean, why would you spend $5 to rent a movie for three nights when you can own one forever for a bit more? Sometimes quite a bit more, but people were starting to say, I'm just going to buy movies instead of rent them. In addition to decreased consumer demand, Blockbuster was being leaned on heavily by Viacom during this period. So Viacom's the parent company, 
And it had incurred a huge amount of debt while it was trying to make that acquisition of Paramount. And executives still wanted to buy more companies. Viacom wasn't done acquiring companies. And Blockbuster was really a productive revenue generator. So Blockbuster became a way of fueling those acquisition efforts. Stephen Berard became the CEO after Huizinga left in September 1994. Initially, he tried to follow Huizinga's philosophy. He pushed for more expansion, but he also ended up getting caught up in a little bit of a scandal. In February 1995, he was investigated for possible perjury. The matter concerned a lawsuit between former Blockbuster vice chairman Scott Beck and the company. The district attorney uh, concluded that there just wasn't sufficient evidence to support the accusation of perjury, and so they did not pursue charges against Berard, but it still was kind of not great PR for Blockbuster, even though ultimately the district attorney said, no, I I can't find enough here to warrant going any further. Berard would actually resign in March 1996, so he had been at as CEO of Blockbuster for about a year and a half, and he left the company. Where did he go? Well, he went to go join his buddy Huizinga and his new ven- venture of Auto Nation. And then he actually followed or- along with some of Huizinga's other ventures. They would go from one company to the next, and he did pretty darn well for himself. Replacing Burrard as CEO would be a guy named Bill Fields. He had formerly been with Walmart. Fields' strategy was to push for Blockbuster to become an entertainment variety store. He started pushing for Blockbuster to open more stores in smaller markets like rural communities. He saw how Walmart had been a huge success by moving into these rural communities, and he thought Blockbuster could do the same thing. He also began laying off a bunch of middle management out of corporate headquarters. He he slashed lots of jobs while he was CEO, and that was to both streamline operations and to reduce costs. He began to push for Blockbuster to get more into video sales, not just rentals, and he wanted to take on his former employer, Walmart, in that regard. Walmart was the dominant uh, merchant for videotape sales at this stage. And he also wanted Blockbuster to offer other products and services, including the possibility of signing customers up for internet service with partnered providers who worked with Blockbuster or for offering up a PC upgrade service. So you would bring your computer in and a the PC upgrade business would end up souping up your, your system. Fields also had really big plans to customize the store experience for different regions. He actually said, and this is a quote, New York City will have much more sophisticated products than Winder, Georgia. Ouch, dude. As someone who comes from rural Georgia, ouch, New Yorkers, no sophisticated products. In 1997, Blockbuster headquarters would relocate again. Now, you might remember in the first episode, I talked about how Blockbuster started in Dallas, Texas, and then moved from Dallas, Texas to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, because that's where Huizinga wanted to set up shop. But now Huizinga's out. So Bill Fields decides to relocate the headquarters again. Now, where are they going to move? Back to Dallas, Texas, where it all started. However, one person would not go along with the company to this new headquarters, and that was, drumroll please, Bill Fields. The CEO quit his job just 13 months in that position. 
Here was this powerhouse of retail with huge plans for Blockbuster, who now was going to step back. Why was he leaving? He said he wanted to get back to, quote, general retailing, end quote. Now, that caused major concerns in the company. So, for one thing, Fields had hired a whole bunch of former Walmart executives to join him at Blockbuster. So, the first fear is that, well, if Fields is leaving, are all of his hires going to leave too? Because that frequently happens. If you have an executive come in, that executive ends up hiring his or her buddies or people that they know from a former company. And then that executive leaves, frequently the other people will leave too. They'll say, well, the whole reason why I came in here was because this person convinced me to. And now that they're gone, there's no reason for me to stay. So that was a big fear. For another fear, according to the Sun Sentinel, 33 of the 40 top executives who were listed in Blockbuster's annual report that was filed in spring 1994 had left the company by spring of 1997. So nearly all of the top executives of the company had changed out of Blockbuster in just three years. Meanwhile, company financial reports were not in great shape either. The cash flow was down significantly. Viacom's share price had fallen 12%. Remember, Viacom was the parent company. And the industrial average for the stock market was actually on the rise. So in general, companies were doing great on the stock market. And even when that was happening, Viacom's share was dropping 12%. So Viacom announced it would sell off some of its stock in Blockbuster in order to pay toward Viacom's $12 billion in debt. The move left many corporate employees confused at the relocation to Dallas because it was Bill Fields who had led that move to relocate the company from Fort Lauderdale back to Dallas, Texas. And now he was leaving Blockbuster. But Blockbuster was still going to relocate. Now, not everyone can just pick up and move, right? You can't just pick up your entire life and move to an entirely new state. Not a lot of people are able to do that. In fact, less than 30% of all corporate employees at Blockbuster headquarters chose to move with the company. That represents an enormous loss in knowledge and talent. It's a huge setback. People who have dedicated their time and efforts and their skill to that company were gone, and there was a huge void left. Meanwhile, the employees who decided not to go with the move were wondering, why the heck is the company relocating when the guy who made that decision wasn't even going to go there? It, it seemed counterintuitive. Jessica Reif Cohen, who was an analyst for Merrill Lynch, estimated that Blockbuster's value had dropped 40% since it had merged with Viacom. And because Bill Fields was leaving, she estimated it was going to take at least a year or maybe a year and a half to turn things around. And that's assuming that Blockbuster could find the right leader to do it. There were also stories about Sumner Redstone, who was the head of Viacom, and his managerial approach which, according to some people, was a little bit on the authoritarian side. He was clearly unhappy with Blockbuster's performance in the market, and it didn't help that while Blockbuster seemed to be floundering, Hollywood Video, its largest rival in the video rental industry, was reporting a modest sales gain. So Blockbuster's doing really badly, and it's the biggest fish in the pond, and then the next biggest fish is not doing badly at all, or doesn't? it seems to be doing pretty well. So who was going to come in 
to Blockbuster to try and turn things around? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. The next leader for Blockbuster, who had the unenviable job of trying to write a listing ship, was John Antioco. And boy, his story is one that has been hashed over a lot in the business world. He's been raked over the coals multiple times, largely because in hindsight, there appeared to be some enormous missed opportunities that might have saved Blockbuster. But the truth is a little more complicated than that. And I don't think that Antioco should shoulder all the blame. He has some responsibility, but I really don't think that ultimately it was his leadership that doomed Blockbuster. Antioco had spent 20 years working at 7-Eleven. He was someone originally who would move in to help failing stores recover, and ultimately he would get promoted to a vice president position at that company. He would later work for Pearl Vision. He worked for Circle K for a while. He worked for Taco Bell for a while. And that's when Sumner Redstone reached out to him and said, would you like the role of CEO at Blockbuster? And Antioco thought, well, here's an opportunity to try and really turn this company around. He walked into a a seriously bad situation. The company's talent had been gutted. Store operations were suffering as a result. Stores were not getting the latest titles on their street date. That meant that you could go to a store and buy a video on its release date, but you couldn't find it in a Blockbuster. That was not great either. One of Antioca's first big moves was to go to the movie industry and renegotiate the way things worked with them. So the way it had been working was that video rental companies would pay higher prices for copies of movies. So a cassette of a, a movie might cost $65. You know, you could go out and buy it at a store for much less, but the video rental copies would be 65 bucks. When you're buying hundreds or thousands of cassettes in order to build out an inventory, that adds up super fast. And it meant that a store would need to rent out a little around 30 times per title in order to earn back the investment made on that purchase. So you buy a movie for $65, you need to to rent out that movie 30 times in order to make your investment back. And then from that point forward, it's profit. Antioca said, hey, I I got an idea. Let's try something else. How about we buy your movies at a much lower rate, like between $1 to $4 per cassette. But in return, you will get a percentage of rental revenues, like 40%. So we'll keep 60% of the rental revenues. You keep the other 40% of the rental revenues. You get a smaller upfront fee for those movies, but there's a long tail revenue stream that will keep going for as long as the movie is being rented. And the more times a title's rented, the more money everybody makes. The movie studios came around to this idea. The, movie, the move also meant that uh, Blockbuster could acquire a lot more cassettes this way, which was really important for new popular titles. So now what Blockbuster would do is for the brand new titles, when they would come out, they would purchase a huge number of those. They would flood their inventory with the newest titles. I remember walking into Blockbusters around this era and looking at the wall, and you would just see a, a like half of a shelf taken up by a new title. So you might see a, a popular movie, and it may even take up a full shelf depending upon the popularity. And it was largely because this renegotiation made this financially feasible. Blockbuster could almost guarantee that a new title was going to be in stock when you came by to rent it. That removed 
a big risk, you know, this idea that you would show up to the video rental store only to find out the movie you wanted to rent was already out. Antioco also chose to move Blockbuster out of some of the businesses it had just started to get into, including that uh, PC upgrading business that Bill Fields really was pushing for. Antioco felt that the company really needed to refocus on its core business of video rentals and that diversifying really meant spreading the company out too thin, particularly in the wake of losing so many employees. They didn't have the expertise to keep all these other businesses afloat. But two things emerged that would be huge setbacks for Blockbuster, at least in the long run. One was the DVD format, which launched in the mid-1990s. Movie studios were selling DVDs at 20 bucks or less per title, and that created a high adoption rate for movies, and that undercut rentals, especially when you have a customer who says, well, I could rent this movie on VHS and watch a magnetic film transfer, or I could buy a DVD, an optical transfer, that's at a higher resolution, better quality picture, better quality sound, and I can own it for less than 20 bucks. So we started to see a big dip in the video rental industry as a whole once DVDs came out like this. The other big thing that emerged in 1997, though at the time when it emerged, it wasn't a big thing, it would just become an enormous thing, was a company called Netflix. I'll have to do a full episode about Netflix as it has become such a major player in entertainment now that it produces so much original content. But back in 1997, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph co-found this brand new company. And their business plan originally was to act as merely an online DVD rental company. They still do this, by the way, but this was their only uh, business when they first started. So the way it works is you would create a membership profile, you would subscribe, you, cr- you select a plan, whatever that subscription plan is. They, they introduced different subscription plans about a year after they started uh, really getting into business. You would log into Netflix's system, you would choose which titles you wanted, they would ship those titles to your mailbox, and it would come along with a return envelope. So as soon as you were done watching, you slip the disc in the return envelope, throw that back in the mail, and you're done. The company began renting DVDs in that way in 1998, and the following year, that's when it would offer up the unlimited DVD rental plan for a monthly membership fee. And in 2000, Hastings would meet with some of Antioch's people over at Blockbuster. But more on that in just a second. Blockbuster, however, did not jump on the DVD bandwagon right away. In fact, it held back for several years. So DVDs debuted in the mid-90s. Blockbuster committed to start carrying DVDs in 1999, but it did so in a pretty slow adoption rate, and it would not really commit fully to DVDs until 2002. All right, back to the late 90s with Blockbuster. In 98, Viacom sold off Blockbuster Music for $115 million because the music business just wasn't working out for Blockbuster, and Viacom executives had grown impatient with the low performance. They just felt that it wasn't worth keeping it around, so they sell it off for $115 million. Blockbuster, meanwhile, closes some stores, a lot of them in international markets, and Viacom was starting to get a little concerned because Viacom had been relying on Blockbuster to provide cash flow to help pay off debt and fund acquisitions. But now Viacom found itself having, having to fund money to Blockbuster. So it was no longer getting money from Blockbuster. Now it was having to kind of help keep Blockbuster afloat. 
that was not very attractive to Viacom executives. In August 1999, Viacom held an IPO of a percentage of its stock, and this was all a cash-raising strategy. They thought, well, we'll raise some quick cash. We'll sell off about 18% of the stock we have, and then we will uh, we'll make money that way. And they thought that the shares were going to trade somewhere between $16 and $18. In reality, they traded at $15, so they didn't make nearly as much money as they had hoped. Also in 1999, another giant, one that I've actually covered in previous Tech Stuff episodes, got into Blockbuster's grill in a big way. That company was Amazon. So now we have Jeff Bezos and Reed Hastings both chomping at the bit to carve into the same market that Blockbuster was really after. Amazon was not interested in renting videos, unlike Netflix, but it did expand beyond selling books to include other items like DVDs and sold them for a very low price. So now you could see a lot of find a lot of those same titles over at Amazon for a price that was not that different from the rental fee that you would incur, especially when you put it on top of a membership fee at a Blockbuster. So that really ate into their, their business as well. Antioco did, did see that home delivery and streaming services would poise either a great opportunity for Blockbuster or a threat to the company. And he tried to take steps to build out Blockbuster's uh, capabilities to enter into those fields. But he re- he had some resistance from Viacom. He also just had the problem of the fact that he was presiding over a company that still was was kind of teetering from that massive loss of talent. In 1999, he led Blockbuster to form a three-year partnership with America Online, the online service provider. Blockbuster would become a premier home video provider for AOL's entertainment channel, and AOL would make a $30 million investment in Blockbuster. And Antioco began to explore options for broadband content and delivery. But internet speeds in those days were not what they are today. So streaming video was largely seen as being too ambitious for what passed as the standard in internet speeds at that time. In 2000, we have that meeting I mentioned earlier between Reed Hastings and some of Antioco's people. So the head of Netflix and some of the folks over at Blockbuster. So what was going on? Well, Reed Hastings was willing to sell Netflix to Blockbuster for the princely sum of $50 million. But Blockbuster says, no deal. Apparently, they thought Netflix was kind of a small-time player in a niche market. They had seen that Netflix was struggling to really make money. But it was early days for Netflix. But let's flash forward today, just for a quick second. Blockbuster is all but gone. It's It's... Really, it exists kind of in name only at this point. Netflix, however, has a market cap of $151.58 billion. But then again, hindsight is 2020. Still, double yikes. So instead of this Netflix deal, Blockbuster decides to sign a 20-year video-on-demand exclusive deal with a broadband services company. That broadband services company belonged to a company called Enron. Now, you might have heard that name because Enron employees got up to some pretty serious shenanigans. And by employees, I mean executives. And by shenanigans, I mean really illegal activity. Blockbuster ended up scuttling the deal just nine months after the ink had dried. So didn't go with Netflix. They did go with Enron. Ouch. 
Also in 2000, nearly $800 million that Blockbuster takes in that year would come from late fees. So late fees would account for nearly 16% of the revenue of the company. And as services like Netflix would offer up rentals without late fees, Blockbuster would see a steady decline in rental revenues. In 2001, they would end up changing their minds about rental fees uh, and late fees, rather. And uh, that becomes a whole mess I'll talk about in just a second. Blockbuster had also committed to that DVD format back in 1999, really started to convert to all DVDs in stores by 2002. And two years later, in 2004, they finally launch an online DVD rental program similar to what Netflix had been doing in 2004. But 2004 was also when another company called Coinstar introduced a new type of video rental service, Redbox. Redbox DVD kiosks, which put DVD rentals in high traffic areas like like uh, grocery stores and places like Walmart, that kind of thing. You'd see a Redbox there. You could just go up and uh, uh, put a, some money in and rent yourself a film. It got a lot of impulse renters that way. Blockbuster would not create a similar strategy until 2008. So in both cases, both with uh, video DVD uh, over the mail and by doing this kiosk approach, Blockbuster fell way behind the industry leaders and was suffering because of that. Now, the end of 2004 saw the involvement of someone whose actions ultimately, I would argue, would lead to the demise of the company, and all because he was trying really hard to turn things around. More on that in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsors. The person I alluded to before the break is investor Carl Icahn. (laughs) This is a a name that pops up a lot in technology, just and business in general. Carl Icahn is is famous for his aggressive investment strategies and getting involved in corporate governance, largely through proxy fights. He buys up a whole bunch of shares of stock and then gets a bunch of other shareholders together and then challenges the board of directors of various companies. This is the way it went with Blockbuster. So Icon spent about $84 million to buy nearly 10 million shares of Blockbuster, which amounted to about 5.8% ownership of the whole company. And he pushed for Blockbuster to make a move to make a hostile takeover of Hollywood Video, which, by the way, he also owned shares of at that time. And Hollywood Video was still the arch rival for Blockbuster in the traditional video rental space. Although, obviously, Netflix was a rising star that was taking more and more of their business. The first offer that Blockbuster would make would be a $700 million deal, which valued Hollywood video shares at $10.25 a share. So essentially, the idea was that let's go out to Hollywood video shareholders and say, we'll buy up your shares for $10.25 per share. And if you agree, then that's awesome. Everyone's happy. And then we end up with a majority shareholding of the company and we can force the board of directors to do what we want it to do and do a hostile takeover. But that deal didn't get enough traction. Eventually the amount, the the offer crept up to a billion dollars, but ultimately Hollywood video shareholders would accept a totally different offer extended by a company called Movie Gallery in early 2005. Icon, not to be deterred, this Hollywood video takeover didn't work out, he decides to get more involved in Blockbuster's operations, much to the consternation of Antiaco. In 2005, Icon would be able to launch a proxy fight and have himself and two of 
his buddies, elected to Blockbuster's board of directors. Uh, He was able to get a fourth seat a little bit later after one of the other board of directors resigned or retired, really. And then Icon says, hey, Antioco, your salary is way too high. You made more than $50 million in 2004, and the company you're leading ain't doing so hot. I am paraphrasing, by the way. Icon also didn't like that Blockbuster had eliminated late fees in response to competitors because late fees had accounted for a good deal of revenue in the past. And he also felt that the company had spent too much money to launch its own online store. So essentially, Icon was taking exception to all the more recent moves that the company had made and wanted to turn back time somehow. This kept on going throughout 2004, 2005, and 2006, all while Blockbuster was struggling to hold its place. The board kept wanting to reinstate late fees to focus more on the old revenue models that Blockbuster had relied upon previously, and Antioca and his executive staff argued strenuously against those moves. In 2005, Blockbuster became the focal point for several investigations from 48 different states in response to its no late fees marketing campaign. They alleged that the company was misrepresenting the policy to customers. And Blockbuster would ultimately settle that case for $650,000. So what actually happened? Well, the advertised policy was that Blockbuster was instituting a no-late-fees approach, which sounds like, hey, you can rent a movie and it doesn't matter how long you hold on to it, you'll never get charged a late fee and you can just return it whenever. That's not actually how it worked. In actuality, if a customer were to hold on to a rental beyond seven days past its due date, so a week after it was due, if you still had that title, Blockbuster would put a charge on your credit card for the full sales price of that rental. So let's say you're renting a video game that has a retail price of $40, and you rent it, it's due on a Tuesday, the following Tuesday you still have it, you would get charged that 40 bucks. Now, you could get reimbursed for that if you return the title within 30 days, but you would still get charged a restocking fee. And people said, I don't know, that sounds a lot like late fees to me. You're you're wording it in a different way, but it, it still seems like I'm getting penalized for returning this late. And that's kind of what the court said. And so Blockbuster ended up settling without admitting wrongdoing for $650,000. And in 2006, the board told Antioca that they were going to cut him a much smaller bonus check than what he was due according to his contract. And so Antioca said, see you in court. And eventually, Antioca and Icon came to an agreement that Antioca would step down as CEO in July 2007, and in return, he would get his bonus and a big exit package. And he was happy to take that offer. He was like, you know what? I feel like I've done what I needed to do as best I could, and my hands were tied, and I don't need this aggravation. I'm out of here. 2007 also saw a meeting between Antioco and and Reed Hastings again, uh, well, really for the first time before Hastings had met with some of Antioco's people, but now they met at the Sundance Film Festival. This was obviously before Antioco actually stepped down as CEO. Hastings was giving an offer. This time, Hastings was coming forward and saying, hey, I will take your online business off your hands. I will buy Blockbuster's online business. Antioco thought that it would make way more sense to have a merger between the two companies, and ultimately the deal went nowhere. The new CEO for Blockbuster was someone else who came from 7-Eleven. His name is James Keyes. Keyes led the company and changed its identity from Blockbuster Video to Blockbuster Media. He found various ways to cut costs pretty dramatically, and he began changing up the product lines and services. But Blockbuster 
was too far gone. It wouldn't have mattered if Keyes' efforts were really great or not great at all. The company was pretty much beyond help. It had seen its business go to competitors like Netflix and Redbox. It had a large amount of debt that it was not able to pay off. A lot of that was owed to Viacom. And Keyes tried his best. He he led a a failed attempt to purchase another big company. This was a, a weird decision. In 2008, he was trying to acquire Circuit City. That was a $1 billion deal, but it fell through, and Circuit City would actually go bankrupt the following year. Now, I did episodes about Circuit City earlier, so you can learn more about that if you go through the archives. But plenty of analysts looked at Keyes' move when he said, I want to acquire Circuit City, and they thought, well, that just don't make no sense. I mean, a struggling company rarely improves once they acquire a different struggling company that's in another industry. Rarely do you see two struggling companies band together and make a real go at it. It's, it's, that's a Cinderella story. By 2009, there were whispers that Blockbuster was headed toward bankruptcy. In March 2010, perhaps in a move of desperation, the company reintroduced late fees. <laughs> so they got rid of them. And then in 2010, they put them back in. And customers hate late fees. But they did represent a decent amount of revenue for Blockbuster in the past, which is why the company kind of brought them back. Before Blockbuster got rid of late fees, the company had already run into trouble once before. So I mentioned that one about the no late fees in that lawsuit. There was actually a lawsuit that happened even before that, back in 2001. Uh, That's because the late fees back before this change could grow to the point where they were actually more than the value of the rental. So you could end up getting charged more than what it was, what it would cost for you to go out and buy a copy of the thing you were renting. And that ended up becoming a lawsuit. So this new reinstated late fee would take a different approach. They didn't want to have that same issue. So the idea was that a late fee would be incurred, you would get a dollar fee for every day uh, you were late, up to 10 days. And at that point, it was capped. So up to an additional $10 fee on a late return. Not quite as, as exorbitant, but customers don't like late fees, so it didn't really matter. In 2010, Blockbuster lost more than a billion dollars. The valuation for the company at that time was 24 million bucks. Still a lot of money, but 24 million, that was a huge fall from where Blockbuster was at its peak. Netflix, by the way, at that same time in 2010, that little company that Antioch's people had scoffed at a decade earlier, was valued at $13 billion. Even though the only remaining video chain in the United States was uh, Movie Gallery, the only other one besides Blockbuster, uh, that one underwent liquidation in 2010. So Movie Gallery goes away and liquidates. That leaves Blockbuster as the only video rental store, like physical store in the United States. And even then, it wasn't enough to save the company. The stock price dropped so low that the New York Stock Exchange delisted the company. And out of options, Blockbuster would file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. In 2011, Blockbuster would hit the auction block, Dish Network would purchase the company for $320 million, and for two years, Dish would try to keep Blockbuster going. Initially, they said, we're going to shut down all but 600 locations, and we're going to keep those 600 locations open. They weren't able to do that very well, and the company was past the point of no return. And in 2013, 
Dish would end up shutting down the remaining 300 company-operated stores. The only blockbusters that were left in the United States after this happened were franchises. So these were independent stores that had licensed the blockbuster name and technology, but they were not company-operated. All the company-operated stores were gone. Lore has it, by the way, that the last film rented from an official company-owned blockbuster store was the movie This Is The End. And it was a Hawaiian location. I have no idea if that's actually true, but it is a pretty cool story. Here in the United States, every single blockbuster location, both company-owned and franchised, has closed with one exception. The very last store is in Bend, Oregon. There were two stores that were in Alaska, but both of those closed earlier in 2018. So if you like, you can travel to Bend, Oregon. You can go to that Blockbuster video and you can get yourself a membership card to rent movies there. It'll cost you $30 a month for membership. Now, seeing as Netflix offers a premier subscription plan for Blu-ray rentals at half that price, and it's an even lower price if you're going for DVD rentals, it's got to be pretty tough to hold on to customers at that Blockbuster. So that's the story. Blockbuster, at its peak, it had 9,000 stores worldwide. Some of them were directly operated by the company. Some of them were franchises. It made several people connected to the company extremely wealthy, producing both millionaires and billionaires. But ultimately, it failed to adapt to a changing market. It resisted those changes for too long. And by the time it moved to fix those problems, it was already too late. It was playing a losing game of catch-up, and it was losing ground with every step. So, wow. What a difference. Well, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes, maybe there is a company or a technology or a person in tech you would like me to cover. Maybe there's someone you would like me to have on as a guest or to interview. Let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget... We have a merchandise store at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's tee.public.com slash techstuff. You can buy all sorts of stuff, tote bags, t-shirts, mugs. You can get the Tech Stuff logo. You can get the Ada Lovelace design, which is my favorite. You can get iHeartTech. You can be like me and love all things tech. And every purchase you make goes to help the show a little bit. And you end up with some cool stuff too. Also, don't forget, follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 